Hi, everyone. This is Amanda Runyon, and I'm really excited to kick off our learning this semester in our Transactional and Corporate Advanced Legal Research class by having a conversation with two guests about what transactional research might look like for students as they transition to junior transactional associates. We also had a chance to discuss the skills that will make junior transactional associates stand out in their first years in practice and the types of tasks that many newer transactional associates struggle with. I'm thrilled that Michelle Dewey, the Legal Research Services Manager at Baker Hostetler LLP in Atlanta, agreed to join me for this important conversation. Before joining Baker Hostetler, Michelle was a law school librarian at the University of Illinois, so she has a wide range of experience working with students and new associates to build their research skills. We were also joined by Genevieve Tung, my colleague at the Biddle Law Library. Genevieve is our Associate Director for Educational Programs and was formerly a litigation associate. She'll be teaching a litigation research course in the spring, so we took this opportunity to chat with Michelle about transactional research in all forms, including in support of litigation work. We hope you enjoy this conversation. So can you tell us uh, what are some of the typical projects for newer first or second year transactional associates that so you see? I think this one was a little bit challenging to think about because I really do think it varies a lot based on firms. I mean, there's plenty of places where you might just jump in and start doing the same work as the assigning attorneys, right? Just doing it supervised underneath them. But I think the key thing is if there is any research related task on any matter, it's going to go to the new person. So that that's really just going to be, you know, a new associate task. Most of the work that you'll find for transactional associates when it comes to research will often be sort of integrated into your regular work. So for a first or a second year transactional associate, you might get assigned an actual research project. Um, and that's because you might get assigned that kind of work where for a long time, the practice group has said, wouldn't it be great if we had a document that, you know, had this 50 state survey where it showed us, you know, all the requirements for XYZ in the jurisdictions um, that we work with. Those are the kind of things that attorneys like to have around and just never get around to doing it. So I think as a first or second year, you might expect some research-based projects, but they're probably going to be more putting together internal things for the group. The rest of the work when it comes to research is really going to be ad hoc. So you're going to be asked to you know, go out and work on drafting these new policies, but the research assignment associated with that will be, I want you to look at what some people are doing in the healthcare industry for creating this type of agreement or this type of policy. And so the research ask isn't always the thing you're being asked to deliver, but you can't really do the underlying transactional work if you're not able to gather the materials that you're going to need to execute it well. That, that sounds very familiar to me as a <laughs> former junior associate. Um, I'm curious, like, for, for either or both of those kind of two general categories um, of, of research tasks, um, what do you see more junior transactional associates struggling with in terms of their, their research? So a couple of things. Um, honestly, most non-legal research. I think a lot of people come right out of law school and 
you know, they just haven't done other research. Either they didn't build those skills as undergraduates or they've just kind of fallen away from them a little bit because they've been really focused on what they've had to do in law school, you know, looking at case law, doing legislative history. And transactional matters often require non-traditional research. You know, looking into research on individuals, you know, who are the key players, what kind of background information can I find about the stakeholders in this field, uh, doing news searching, locating company information. Those things are typically outside the purview of a legal research class, unless you're smart enough to take a class like this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also I think regulated regulatory <laughs> research or legislative tracking. So I don't know if that's because they don't expect to do this kind of work, so they're not really focusing on it, or as students, maybe they just didn't ever really get into the weeds with it. But tracking regulatory and legislative developments is a big part of transactional work. You have to be able to give your client guidance that is infused with the most up-to-date law, but also that protects them or prepares them for potential changes that we know are in the pipeline. And so being able to stay abreast of how do I you know, get notified when there are potential regulations or legislative changes coming down the line, how do I check the status of these bills, and how do I incorporate that into my regular workflow? I think that's something that's really often missed until people get further along in practice and the kind of thing that could really help you streamline your work faster if you find ways right out of the gate to think about those things. And then the last part is really looking for examples, you know, templates, drafting guidance, you know, existing versions of contracts. You know, most attorneys, I think, know those things exist, right? You heard that there were form books or you Googled because somebody asked you as a summer associate, can you go make me a blank? And you had no idea what it is and you found some examples. But really spending time learning about the skills to find those efficiently can be really helpful. Otherwise in practice, you're just hurried and then you skip that step or just grab the first thing off Google. Right. Um, this is sort of related, but are there, are there mistakes that you see junior associates making when they're starting this kind of research for the first time, common uh, mistakes? Yeah, I think one is, you know, the over-reliance on Google. I mean, I, I like the internet, it's great. I'm actually firmly in the Google is our friend category, <laughs> but it, it really shouldn't be the answer every time. You know, I tell my summer associates and new associates here all the time, we want you to use the resources that we pay for. And I think most firms would agree. You know, we buy them because they have really robust content, they have authoritative value, they're pre-vetted. And then in turn, you're being paid as an attorney for your expertise, but also because there's an understanding from your client that you have access to and that you are going to leverage the best information out there. And that that is what you're gonna to use to provide your advice and you know execute your decision-making. So Google, it can get you stuff but it isn't necessarily always going to be the best stuff and the most verified. But the other thing is that Google is not really as efficient, I think, as uh, most attorneys think. Uh, two years ago, I think, I kind of did this little informal study with some of my associates where they let me look at some of their Google transactions for research, you know, what, what they were looking at when they were trying to execute research. And I found that a significant amount of the time Ultimately, they would go into Google, 
they put a phrase in there, let's say process for chapter 11, right? They were just trying to figure out how do we even file a chapter 11? And they would kind of click around. I'd see what they clicked on. I could see that they had gone into a couple different items, scrolled through, and then ultimately landed on an item that was actually inside our collection. If they really understood our collection and knew how to look efficiently, they could have gone directly to say practical law, put that same search in, and you know, my informal study told me that on average, that would save them seven to 10 minutes. That's a big chunk of time. Wow. Especially when you're billing in six so minute increments. They were really shocked when I came back to them and told them, listen, you ultimately ended up with this practice 11 checklist that gave you everything you needed to know. And if you had thought about our collection and understood how to look in the right place for the right thing, you would have gone right to practical law because you knew it didn't have a charge and you knew it was really action-oriented practitioner advice. You would have put the same search in and that chart you landed on through Google eight minutes later was the first result. You, you know, this, first of all, I love how much they they trusted you and that's such a great project to, to leverage their own um, Google searches. Um, what you just said made me think about um, an issue that I used to hear from the librarians at the firm where I practiced, um, that that the younger associates, or excuse me, the more junior associates who would come into work with the research specialists and the librarians just wouldn't kind of know what questions to ask, or they wouldn't know how to phrase their requests for help in a way that would be the most fruitful. So I'm wondering if there's anything you wish associates would know or do when they're first reaching out for help on, you know, maybe mastering the collections or, or learning how to leverage what the firm offers? That's actually a really good question because one of the other things I would say is sort of a common misstep for junior associates is not knowing the collection. And that's really important. If you're at a smaller firm, that can be pretty easy because you probably have a really focused collection. When you get into a larger firm, I want to say that we have over 200 different, you know, what I would call electronic resources. A lot of them are small and do like a single task or it might be a carve out like an e-library, but there's a lot of things to know about. Um, once, if you have a library or a research department, you know, reach out to them and let them know that you're new to the firm and what your practice group is going to be. Usually they'll have if not the ability to have a conversation with you, maybe some documentation that they've already put together or some place that they can direct you. Uh, you know, at my firm, we create research guides for our practice group. I don't think a lot of attorneys know where they are, but if you reached out, we would certainly be able to direct you right there. Um, the other thing is come back and revisit that. Because a lot of times when you start, you might have that conversation, but what you don't have yet is a really good grasp on what your actual work is going to look like. So <laughs> you might be asking a question and you're getting the answer, but later on you haven't revisited. So one, the collection could have changed. There could be new tools that you just didn't hear about, but also your work might be changing and adjusting over time. And so you might be able to ask a better question, but also, you know, get the right information that's directed more towards the actual work. And then the other thing is explore whether there's, you know, like an intranet portal or some other place where your firm's resources are put together and try to make the time to, you know, interact with those. 
And then lastly, leverage your vendor. You're used to, you know, having your Lexus or, or Westlaw reps come to school. Uh, they will also sometimes still give you a Starbucks gift card, um, <laughs> but they, more importantly, will meet with you. They'll do trainings. <laughs> they'll answer your questions. So if you can't get the right answers or you don't have, you know, a research department at your firm, don't be afraid to reach out to vendors. You know, the vendor reps want to engage with you in a firm just as much as they do in a law school. An interesting uh, point that sort of came up with your discussion there, Michelle, is, um, you know, our students walk into our library and they, they see a very, you know, it looks like a library. There are a lot of books, there's a lot of open space, um, and their experience, even post-COVID in, in the firm, is going to be a lot different, I think, in a large firm, right? Um, the, the library is primarily virtual resources and research specialists and librarians yeah, versus like a physical space. A is that correct? No library. <laughs> in, in my office, I affectionately refer to my library <laughs> as my library storage closet. Uh, I work I work in one of my firm's newer offices. It's only five years old, I think. So already by the time that the Atlanta office had opened, they were moving towards this print reduction initiative across the firm. You know, the firm our firm has been really expanding. I don't think we're alone, right? Where we have 16 offices. So instead of having to buy 16 copies of a single wow. book, we can buy a digital copy or two or three, right? And put them on a digital platform where everybody across the firm can use them. So we're really moving to a very printless collection. That said, you know, we still do buy some print. And also we have some offices like our older offices that have been around for a really long time, they, they do have really robust physical libraries. Um, so it will vary. I think there are large firms that have gone completely printless. Um, and then there are also large firms that have almost exclusively print collections. So it, it really is gonna vary depending on your environment. But one thing that'll likely be different no matter what is you will probably personally be leveraging a lot more digital material. And I think that that trend is going to continue because it was already trending that way to go less, less library physical space, less uh, print collection. I think COVID probably accelerated that both because it's an obvious cost cutting measure, um, but also because people have gotten a taste of remote work. And I think we're really gonna see law firms change their policy on the frequency of that. And they might be called librarians, they might be called researchers, they might be called knowledge managers, they might be called mm -hmm. research attorneys or research analysts. You're just gonna have to kind of figure out the lay of the land wherever you are. I am, I, I, I'm having warm memories of how great the librarians were at my firm and how, how, how much I enjoyed going to visit them. But um, you know, I, I'm sure they also would enjoy getting emails. Um, so I'm curious, I, I am also interested in the litigators and their needs. So could you speak just a bit about how litigation associates um, leverage the information resources you offer for transactional things? Um, you know, I think that litigation associates use everything. So <laughs> their bread and butter is going to be case law and you know, statutory research. But at the end of the day, a lot of times they're having to do some of that same work. You know, they're also having to look for sample documents because 
maybe they need to figure out, you know, is this language actually different than a standard? Is it something abnormal or is it standard language? So looking at transactional resources is one they, way that you could determine um, if like contract language is standard. Another thing that they'll regularly do is just sort of recon, uh, not just for business development purposes, but for litigation purposes. You know, maybe they need to go out and do some investigatory research on individuals or corporations because those are important elements of their case. I also think it goes the other way. I actually often recommend to transactional associates that they think thoughtfully about engaging in litigation resources. Like docket resources are really, really helpful um, because you can kind of dig into exhibits and exhibits can be a treasure trove of information. And that's something I regularly tell both litigation attorneys and <laughs> uh, transactional attorneys to think about because a lot of them on both sides uh, don't think about all the things that you can pull out of exhibits. You can get information about people that normally wouldn't be available, like trying to find employment contracts or examples of certain types of employment contracts. Normally that stuff is private, but if it ends up subject to a litigation, it's in an exhibit. And you might be able to find examples of those things that would normally not be public information because somebody had one filed to some kind of litigation. Uh, my favorite example is one time someone asked me to find an example of an ambulance lease. I was like, where am I going to find an example of an ambulance lease? There's no form book that has like ambulance lease chapter. Uh, but I actually was able to find three different dockets. Um, and then one of them, the litigation was actually about the lease itself. And so there was some language that they were disputing. So when I was able to return that to the attorney, I was like, here are three examples. And also, maybe you don't want to use this language. And here's why. Do you have any other advice for students who will soon be these transactional associates or um, maybe talking about what skills might you think might be most important for them to develop while they're still so, uh, in school? One thing I would suggest is not just learning all the platforms. I mean, that's really helpful when you're at, you know, an academic environment, you know, your, your law school likely has a good collection. You're probably also able to leverage some of your main campus collection. So go and check out, you know, some things that they're kicking around at the business school um, and get kind of familiar with just like the names and the, the types of resources that are out there. But more importantly, as you're learning these different tools, pay attention to what your professors say, the librarians tell you, the vendors tell you about the tools and how to evaluate them. Because you have no idea what's gonna be available to you when you land somewhere. So if you get really hung up on, you know, I have to use Westlaw, I have to use IntelliJise, I have to use corporatecouncil.net, whatever it is, if you get really hung up on a platform, you're gonna feel much more lost and stressed. If you think thoughtfully about the types of information, focusing on the types of information, as you're learning all these things, don't focus so much on the platforms, but think about what are the types of information I need? What are the kind of places or kind of tools that might you know, keep track of that? The other thing is leverage the internet. It's really, it's really great, but make sure you understand that free isn't free. You're always gonna pay. You, you're either gonna pay with your time, you're gonna pay with money, or you're gonna pay with the, the content coverage. And make sure, make sure you know how to do the evaluation of sort of like, what's your currency? Is this a thing where I really need to be cost-effective so my time is less valuable than billing a client? 
this is the kind of thing where I really need to be efficient. And so I need to use a very specific platform, even if it has costs. And then lastly, just remembering to not only stick to your universe. Like we were just talking about, think about other tools that might live, you know, outside of what you would normally think of as a transactional space and how you might be able to leverage them. After the second part of our conversation, which covered company and industry research for next week's class, we circled back to some additional topics that we'll cover in the later weeks of this class, as well as some additional tips for new associates. Well, you know, the other thing I forgot to mention that I think is an emerging area. So I really only dabbled in it a little bit, but I see this as like sort of a next phase of, of where, where is transactional research databases, where are they going, is really getting into more analytics. So I know we have real analytics, um, but SEC analytics. So you can kind of look at like the types of things that are being filed. You can start looking at industry analytics. And so getting comfortable with business analytics generally I think could help you provide a lot of insight that might be missing. That is it's a brave new world yeah, that's out there. Great. We, I feel like we, we talk a lot about analytics on the, on the kind of judicial side of things, but right. um, I imagine some of those skills are transferable. Um, yeah, this does kind of- I, I me... agree. I just think that most people don't know what's out there and, and partially because it's new. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. this tool that I've been kind of eyeballing called Kaleidoscope. Have you heard of it? I have heard the name. So I think they think that they're, like, I think they think they're a competitor to Capital IQ. I'm so weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they might be. They might be. Um, but what they do better than Capital IQ is actually really crazy, robust um, business-related analytics, like related to financials, industry data, family trees, doc, like, um, regulatory docketing, et cetera. So I've been kind of keeping my eye on them, but it'll be interesting to see. Well, I was, I loved what you said about being a sophisticated Excel user because my office mate when I was a third year associate was a, a Wharton grad. And uh, even though she was a litigator, every senior partner would call her to help them format their spreadsheets. <laughs> so she spent a lot of time, I'd hear her on the phone. She's like, all right, well, you're gonna, you're gonna format the row. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> you're gonna run a macro um and, and but she 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 excelled um at excel and everything else went with it so seriously i have attorneys who will send us like a excel file for something that they need and then we'll return it back to them but we'll have like moved a row because we thought it made sense and then we'll say like why why is the row moved how do i get it back <laughs> I, I, and they will, I mean, I will have attorneys send things back because they'll say, oh, I really like this deliverable, but is it possible to have the columns ordered in this way? Like, you sent this back to us to ask us to reorder columns, but they just don't know. Yeah. They, like, have zero idea. So it sounds like, a, it sounds like a way to really stand out from the beginning, just to have some, like, slightly advanced Excel skills. Right, like, can you reorder a row? But I mean, even just being able to make like a basic, you know, pivot table, like a very basic pivot table means that you could take stuff out of like capital IQ and make it into like a very nice little chart or graph, take something that seems unreadable to a lot of people and make it 
very accessible. Okay, everyone, that's all for this episode. I hope you found it helpful. As I mentioned earlier, I'll also be talking with Michelle and Genevieve in another episode for next week's module on company and industry research. Take care.